Well, my mantra was, I am free and I give hope. So mm. it kind of, I guess, summarized what I was writing down in the goals. And But mostly it was kind of a reminder to myself every day that I'm free of stereotypes. I'm free of prejudices. I'm free to screw up and fail. I'm free to just be me. I'm free to do nothing or I'm free to do whatever I want. Like it just kind of opened, you know, it just made me in control of what I was going to do that day. And then the second part of my mantra was like, so I am free and I give hope. So the f- part of that was, yeah, when it's tough and I don't want to do it, I'm, I'm kind of lazy if it's for myself. But if there's a thought that any step forward that I take in proving that it's possible to do both science and the arts and that that you can start late and that you can be a female in science or whatever it is that any step forward that I take possibly gives hope and inspiration to someone else who is probably far more talented and, and can do it much better than myself and just needs that little example. A world-class ballet dancer, a PhD in quantum optics, a participant in BBC's astronaut training series, Have You Got What It Takes? Featured in the book Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls and listed in Forbes 30 Under 30, all by the age of 30. These are some of the not-so-small accomplishments in the impossible story of Dr. Merritt Moore. Ellie Bourne, a Korean mother and an American father, Merritt's upbringing equipped her with a curiosity, problem-solving skills and unconventional mindset to defy conventions that dictate the impossibility of being world-class in ballet and quantum physics at the same time. In the show, we explore her parents' influence, the empowerment strategies they employed that shaped her view of what's possible, how science and art infused her life from an early age, how a serendipitous encounter in Italy, aged 15, defined her ballet journey, how she developed her love of quantum physics, her father's goal-defining challenge that set her on the course of excellence over perfection, her lack of fearlessness and perception of risk and failure. We also cover how she applies creativity in science, and her application of science to improve her ballet, her astronaut training experiences, and a whole lot more, including the challenge we set ourselves to connect Merritt with Elon Musk. I hope you enjoy this conversational collision of art and science with Dr. Merritt Moore. Welcome, Merritt. Actually, welcome Dr. Merritt Moore to the Impossible Network. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for the time. Uh, What a wonderful, impossible journey you've had. Um, So we'd love to discuss your journey, where you've been, where you're going, and really start at the beginning. Um, Yeah, so I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. So neither of my parents were physicists or dancers. So my father was an entertainment lawyer and my mom was this stay-at-home mom. She had studied classics in college. But I think because I was in Los Angeles, which is, you know, the center of Botox and fake boobs, and, you know, and my dad's an entertainment lawyer, and because we were just surrounded by celebrities, like our house, I mean, next door was Paris Hilton, and on the other side, like, we were surrounded by it. So my parents took a very active approach towards making sure that that I was not going to be like, go down this track of being like a... The Paris route. Yeah. You could have been Nicole. <laughs> that was <laughs> They're like, you are forbidden. So what they did was perhaps brainwashing and extreme measures. So there was no TV in the house, no Barbies, no dolls, no fashion magazines, no fairy tales, except the fairy tales my father made up. Whoa, which, so hang on a second. 
Are, did you say you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister. Younger sister. So she, you're the oldest, and they made a conscious decision to exclude all this contemporary media from you. Yeah. Wow. We were and completely isolated. <laughs> like, Quite visionary. It was, it was interesting. So, you know, fairy tales at night would be like, so Prince Charming comes and asks you, like, be like, will you marry me? And what do you girls say? And we'd then have to, like, jump up on the bed and yell out, be like, you have to meet our father first. No way. <laughs> you know, like, that was, we were just completely, um, and interestingly, without me knowing it, I was totally oblivious. But every day my dad would say, girls, girls are smarter than boys. But you got to be nice to them because they don't know it. You know, girls are tougher than boys. We'd ha- we'd wrestle every day. We'd, we'd learn how to throw the American football. We were first to write, know how to ride our bikes and to swim. And like it was like hard. He brought us up kind of like little boys in the sense that every weekend we'd. Or, I mean, it's interesting. I was on a workshop yesterday, uh, a sports a future looking at sports and purpose and there were quite a lot of interesting ex-female athletes and a couple mm-hmm. of Olympic, Olympic champions actually Edwin Moses was there and uh, Benita Fitzgerald Brown from the 84 Olympics and they were talking about a campaign that was run by Sport England uh, Like a Girl yeah, which is really confronting the perceptions that society has around what a girl is but it just sounds to me when you're talking that way you were brought up like a girl it wasn't meant. Why should it be deemed to be like a that's boy? A, that's a really good because point. Because that, yeah. that is just reinforcing, reinforcing gender stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. So I think it was, like I say, I think a visionary move by your mother and father to do that. To be, yeah, like a girl, but mm-hmm. rough and tough and smart and everything that, you know, we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So, and, and then from my mom's side, like she would stay at home and she was super elegant and feminine and just charismatic to the extreme but she was also a double black belt at what point at what point in your upbringing did you start to discover your your love presumably it was a love of science and in particular physics so it began with math so math was a game that we played at home like with flashcards like how quickly could i do you know go through multiplication flashcards in a minute and then if i did better than I did the day before. There was like a, we just ran around the house and like whooped and had these great Danes that would then bark. And it was just this whole celebratory thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so math always became this very fun and passioned. So pursuit. you're bringing gamification into it. Yeah. yeah fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And if I did poorly, then there was not, you know, it was just like, oh, well, tomorrow you'll do better. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, and so math always became a really fun pursuit at home and then at school. I was like, oh, I can, you know, this isn't tough. I can learn it quickly. And Were so, you outperforming people at school because of your father's influence? Um, I think my approach towards math, then when I saw math textbooks, I was much more open to it. Mm-hmm. I was like, ooh, let's see if I can, you know, learn this in under a minute. Like that same mentality mm-hmm. of it being a game. And often I would then, I would excel. And, and unfortunately, then the teacher would want the rest of the class to catch up. So they'd give me the textbook to go in the hall. <laughs> and I'd learn the next chapter and, and learn it. And then, so then I'd place out in the next chapter and I'd go back out in the hall with the textbook. And it was kind of this, but I always loved Regardless, I was still enjoying the math. And at home, I had tons of 3D puzzles and I was always building things. We had tons of arts and crafts around the house. Mm-hmm. So no TV, but lots so of So there was a co- perfect combination between 
science and math and and being hands on and and and, yeah so the creative the creative side wasn't left the creative side was being fostered at the same Mm -hmm. time do you think that was a conscious effort on the part of your father and my and my mom yeah looking back i'm like they fully (laughs) do you think they had expectations of you of what they wanted you to do or the direction no they they thought i was going to be my mom thought i was going to be a you know, work at the museum next door and stay at home my whole life because I was quite quiet. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they wanted, I wasn't allowed to do any extracurricular until I was 13 because she didn't want me to have any pressure. She just wanted to offer all of the toys and games that would stimulate my mind that she didn't have growing up. Mm-hmm. So I think both of them, both my mom and my dad were kind of neglected as kids. So to counter that, when they had kids, uh, they were that's like, interesting. so th- they didn't, all of the things that they were doing was in no way to, you know, they didn't ha- envision me being a physicist at all or going to a fancy school. They wanted me to stay at home, but they at least, they wanted to give me the experiences that they never had. Mm. Where, do, where did your mother and father grow up? So my mother, um, she was born in Korea. And so I know that she had very strict parents that kind of demanded straight A's. Mm-hmm. And would punish her if she didn't, but would never provide the books, would never provide mm-hmm. the tutoring, wouldn't provide anything that would kind of help her. And so it was constantly a struggle and she was constantly getting punished for it. And on my dad's side, he was the youngest of very of a lot of kids. And I think that by the time it was him and his twin, the parents at, at 12, mm-hmm. like, go fend for yourself and just wow. leave. So I think both of them kind of then... Counter, you know, wanted to yeah, relive their usually, childhood. As, as it usually happens. Yeah. In most people. Okay, so we've got context on that. Uh, I did hear you on one interview talk about how your that it was your mother that encouraged you to take up ballet because yeah. of your tomboy esque. <laughs> but well, it was more my my posture. Your so posture. There was, yes. There was a mix of I wanted to do karate, and I think she wanted me to do karate. But later on, and she was picky about the coaches because she was a double black belt, so. I think when you're an expert, you become a bit more critical about the schooling. And at the same time, I, I mean, my posture was a biz- I Like I would like, yeah. I'd wear tomboy clothes and like slouch around. Like, yeah, you were how old? Uh, 12, 13. Yeah, well, it's that, it's that age, isn't it? Yeah, where you just want to <laughs> slump around. And so they, yeah, there was kind of a, a bribe that I'd have to just try dance, but then stop. Mm-hmm. She didn't. She did not want me to continue. With I wonder the why she picked ballet rather than some other non-martial arts pursuit. Was there any? Um, do you think, think it was because just, of the posture? I think it was the posture. At least, I mean, that's what she said. Yeah. <laughs> there could have been some hidden agenda, but <laughs> I don't know. So, how soon were you bitten by the ballet bug? It was a mix. So, when I first started ballet. I was like, oh, this is tough. Like, I like this. Mm-hmm. This is, oh, okay. I thought, you know, to see me in pink tights and a pink glory tight was like the last thing that was going to happen. But it was this Russian teacher who was super harsh. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, there we go. This is good. <laughs> um, and then there was a, you know, after two years, I got disillusioned by it because I realized you know, there's this strive for this perfection and all the girls are supposed to be look exactly alike and this is starting to get real boring. And so I wanted to quit and then did a school year abroad in Italy in a town that I looked up and had no dancing. I was like, we'll do that. 
But Bettina, our producer is Italian. Ah, uh, there we go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Viterbo. Viterbo. Yeah. Okay. And I went. Place to end up. It was amazing. Yeah. How did you end up there? There's this American school year abroad there. Oh. And I, I was like, okay. And with an, uh, other American children. Mm-hmm. Uh, that must be. And you, but you live with an Italian family. And the Italian family I ended up with didn't speak any English. So if you want to eat, you got to learn yeah, that Italian, Italian yeah. real fast. <laughs> Which is probably the intent of sending you there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So why did you pick Italy over another country? I was learning Latin in school. Mm-hmm. So... Italy was kind of the place you go if you're studying Latin. All right. So you went to Italy. Did you continue? Did you, did you maintain your ballet during that year? Oh, I decided to quit dancing when I got to Italy. But there was a Romanian teacher there who took me under her wing and I would train with her. I would stay at her place from and we'd wake up at 6 a.m., go to dance class and then she would coach me for two hours and then she would go home and make lunch and then I would continue stretching then I'd go back and have lunch have a quick nap and then we'd continue training off her radiator okay this is interesting because I want to get into the subject of serendipity Mm -hmm. um, and happy accidents that happen it feels like this is probably a big one one. but before we do so you've got no idea what your career is going to be at this point Uh, I just know that it's probably not going to be dance Okay, so you assumed it wouldn't be dance, but it would be something in the in the field of science. Did you expect that? At this point, I'm 15, 16, and I've never taken a physics class, but I have a, a feeling that I'm going to really like physics. Mm-hmm. I've heard vaguely about physics and heard that it has to do with math and putting pieces together mm-hmm. and these unknown mysteries that I was super curious about. But I had not taken physics at that point. Okay. So you, you met this Romanian teacher. That sounds like a very serendipitous um, encounter. And just to contextualize this, a lot of in- listeners might not know the story of serendipity that Horace Walpole, the English author in the 1700s, had been reading about the, the three princes of serendip, an old Persian fable, um, had gone on a journey and taken the path that uh, was unexpected. And because of this, they encountered experiences they didn't expect. And he coined the term serendipity. And a lot of people believe that serendipity is just luck or chance. But Walpole had this view that it's something you can engineer by the way you live your life and your attitude to life. Mm-hmm. So you'd ended up because of parents that were willing to send you into an environment that you couldn't speak the language to experience something new. And this serendipitous experience unfolded of a Romanian ballet teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, not only let me, well, I had to persuade my parents to let me go. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that it was, was you, lot of, but that was it. I mean, at, I mean, age, that was a lot of, at uh, age 15, having the, the will and the desire to, to leave. It's a funny one because there's so many times, I mean, when I was 15, that was a, a very definitive point in which I decided I was going to stop dancing. And then this teacher showed up. That makes it even more pivotal but, and, yeah. and fascinating, the fact that you'd made a conscious decision to stop yet. This amazing yeah. teacher shows up when I was 15. And I then, this fall, I went back to train with her. I trained with her, you know. This fall? Yeah. So, oh my you goodness. know, so 15 years later... Life. Yeah, I would go in back and train with her twice a year, every year for over Christmas, over all my holiday times, anytime. And 15 years later, after I've danced in professional ballet companies, I still go back to her Amazing. to train. She must be so proud of you. Well, she won't show it. 
(laughs) (laughs) She will never tell me that. But she has, what she did do for me was just say, look, Merit, the only way you're going to be strong is if you are you like unique and different yourself. Because you like, started late. Because I started to most late. Ballet dancers who would start around five or six years old. Exactly, and I started thirteen, which is middle age. And so her thing was, look, Mary, you know, if you strive for perfection, you're replaceable. Mm-hmm. But if you stay strong to who you are, then you're irreplaceable. And directors want that. Like the world kind of wants something that they can't replace. So really believe in yourself and be you. And so everything I then did in the training with her in the studio kind of affected my life outside of the studio. It's an interesting word. I, I know different people have different perspectives on, on perfection. But you've, I've heard you talk about another, your, the, your favorite ballet dancer mm-hmm. yeah. uh, called Sylvie. Kiem. Kiem, <laughs> who is more than perfection. It's about excellence. Mm-hmm. And it sounds to me that you strive for excellence on your terms, on using your traits, your personality. And perfection really isn't. Well, what is perfection? It's a. It's not really. A, it's a subjective term. So you've you've created this identity and this approach to ballet that is very much you. That was encouraged by this vision. Again, a, another visionary person in your life. This Romanian teacher. Yeah, and I. I think also realizing that for most of my life, I was someone who was very paralyzed by the desire to be perfect Uh a lot like my all of my childhood and I mean I had a lot of freedom growing up as a kid but you'd put me in a schoolroom and I wanted to blend it I wanted Uh to be that perfect girl like not that my parents wanted me but I don't know there was just something in me that I wanted to do things right Uh I wanted to do it well and and I found that very paralyzing and so at some point, though, I, I realized that in myself and I changed kind of what perfection meant for me. So if I went into an audition or something, I then said, Mary, you do a good, you're doing a good job if you screw up three times. Uh-huh. Like if you really go for it and you mess up three times, that'll be we're going to redefine this perfection. And so then it just gave me this freedom to be way more bold and to like. To okay, well, that's, this yeah. seems like a good segue to bring in the word failure aligned to that willingness to embrace risk taking and not fear failure so what was the equation between that and you're 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 striving for perfection but then that point at which you pivoted and went i don't need to be perfect and i'm gonna fail a lot (laughs) but but through that failure you're getting closer yeah no i love perfect you rather than perfection Exactly. And I, I loved, um, yeah, there was a moment, uh, okay, when I was 18, I went to college and quit dance, but then got pulled back in. And then at 19, I decided, I was like, it's now or never. I'm too old already. I'm 19. I need to get into a company now. Mm-hmm. And so I just went on a ambush. I just did every single audition. <clears throat> Where were you living at this point? I was in Boston. So you'd come from Boston. So wait, how did... Okay, so just take... So yeah, from yeah. <laughs> Italy at 15, 16, from Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You came back from Italy. Yeah, came back, did my final senior year uh, in Los Angeles. Did my first physics class. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, um, I like, when, yeah, I I like, like this. this. Although the professor, I do remember the professor being like, man, I don't think this is for you. Because I was, I was picking up the concepts quite slowly. Mm-hmm. It just was taking me quite a while to digest them. And I keep going back to office hours and keep asking questions. And he was like, Merritt, I'm not sure this is for you. Mm-hmm. But I was like, but I like it. And so I just continued with it. And so then I applied for colleges and 
decided, okay, this is the end of my dancing. And not, you know, enough people, a lot of people have said, A, I started too late. A lot of people that I, I respect their opinions of. So we have said I've started too late and that once you go to college, it's never possible to then combine the two. Yeah. 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 I, f- I understand that people would say that in ballet because it's usually something you associate with complete and utter dedication. But having, you know, I went through university as being an athlete running for my country, managing to combine the two and having a kid at the same time, um, <laughs> which I could argue is an, another added distraction. Yeah. <laughs> but if athletes can do it, why couldn't ballet dancers? Why is there an expectation that ballet dancers have to be that dedicated? There's also not the structure at universities that they have for mm. athletes. You don't uh, have. You don't have the facilities. And we the, don't have the facilities. Yeah, we don't have PT. For... We don't get. We we're regarded as the arts, so we get no funding. We get no support. There's a, we don't get the training. You don't have the teachers there. Like it's just you don't have fellow students at the same level i was mm-hmm. super lucky that i came in with a class with six other excellent dancers which was kind of unheard of there hadn't been six other dancers in like a decade mm-hmm. you know at, at the level of the dancers who in had Boston. come in with me to harvard when i had entered yeah. yeah okay okay so you came here then realized that ballet was still on the agenda you came to harvard obviously you'd achieved a lot you hit your grades and you entered into what what field of study at the time? Physics. So it was pure physics you were doing? Yeah, I went okay. straight to physics. And that was daunting because everyone in the class had done the physics Olympiads and were like the mm. best physicists in their country. And I was like, I just did physics last semester. <laughs> and so I was kind of slow. <laughs> but we'll see how this goes. But a lot of people would have been disheartened or put off by certainly in an environment like Harvard with such high achievers. But you weren't. Why not? Good question. I, because it actually never even crossed my mind. I think, I think a lot was the upbringing that I had that there was no pressure for me to do well. Mm. There was a pressure that that I'd have to give, you know, hard work and put hard work into it. If if they're gonna buy me dance classes or put me into school, you know, I need I need to put in the hard work and be appreciative of what I'm getting. But there wasn't a pressure of me to you know to be the best one mm. at all. And that, and I got, I was continually praised for if I failed and got back up. So anytime I did poorly, but I got back up and continued working, that's when my parents would be very effusive about how, mm. that they were super proud about that. Okay. And what about your mentors and who, who was encouraging you at the university at the time? At university, I think I still, you know, I was still going back to my mentor in Romania, the ballet mm. mentor. I, a lot of my mentors have been in dance, have been incredibly strong women in the dance force who have really taken me under their wing. I also had an incredible female mentor, Melissa Franklin, who was the first tenured female professor at Harvard, first female head of the department system. And also I was surrounded with these incredible peers who were so diverse and unique and had different perspectives. Mm that that was very eye-opening. Okay. Your personality traits that you developed, obviously from an early age because of your father and your, and your mother's upbringing, everything you've said so far is, it seems to give me a sense of uh, immense self-discipline. Um, 
strong belief in yourself, the willingness to take actions, regardless of the the risk of failure. What about where does goal setting fit into all this? Have you have you been a goal setter, or have you just followed your your gut? I'd say it's a, a mix. Yeah, when I was fifteen before Italy, and at the point that I had quit dance, I was at the point where I just didn't see the point in anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just was like, why? A, everyone's saying that I won't make it in dance, so why am I putting all this work into it? And then B, like, and then it made me question why I was putting so much work into academics. I was like, why do I care about this test? And mm-hmm. why do I then care about waking up? Like, why do I care about the next? Like, I, I don't know. I, I just I totally lost. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I lost all motivation. And finally, begrudgingly, went to my dad, who was like, yeah, what is the point? Like, mm-hmm. why am I doing this? And he gave me a piece of paper and a pen and said, look, write down things that would possibly make you excited to wake up the next day. Dream like super big in the mm-hmm. future and write down why it would be super exciting for you. But more importantly, like why this would be helpful for mm-hmm. other people. And what did you write down? I At that point, I think it was like figuring out why it would be helpful for other people that it got me excited. And I was like, at that point I wrote down like, I want to prove that it's possible to do, to dance, even though I started so incredibly late. And I want to prove that I can do academics and dance. And I want to prove that, and and I can do both at a super high level because right now I've lost all hope. No one's giving me any hope. And And everyone was telling you no. And everyone's telling me no. And if I can possibly show that it is possible then maybe other people can have the hope and more of a desire to continue on like you know I can bring something that I'm lacking at the moment um and that kind of got my butt in gear right okay that's really interesting so I did physics at school and I, I annoyed my physics teacher because I kept questioning about um, the rules of physics and, and I just and I used to question and, and challenge everything. But one thing obviously I understood a lot at that early age was around E equals MC squared and about momentum. Yeah. And if we take that that equation, you've had momentum from that point onwards. Mm-hmm. You wrote these goals down and that gave you the momentum, the belief to carry on and achieve what you've managed to go on and achieve. Can you talk about, just to help for any of our mm-hmm. listeners that aren't like myself, that aren't great with physics, just a little bit of a layman's overview of quantum physics versus the traditional Newtonian? Yeah, so this is what really got me into physics. And I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Was realizing that there's this whole like environment in you know at the very small level which needs to be isolated if we want to look at it and where things start to happen in in kind of like we call it mysterious ways because we don't experience it at our level but mm-hmm. there's data and I've done all these experiments and you can see it happen where you can have something that's a superposition of light right it can be both a wave and a particle or neither or both until you measure it and then it's one or the other, depending how you measure it. And when you measure it. And when you measure it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just made my like mind go bonkers. And, and no one understands why the two sides don't correlate. Of two sides of physics. the What we experience and what we see and what we can. Versus like the quantum, the quantum right? Yeah. Like why, why doesn't it, why can you only experience it at this very small, mm-hmm. isolated, isolated level? The, but the thing is that even though it's, 
it's not at our level. They're making technology with it. Like yeah, exactly. Quantum, well, quantum computers. Quantum computers right. and the chips that are being advanced right now. They're going to completely re-engineer and change the way we experience the world. And we're going to come and talk, ask, talk, ask, ask you about more specific things around things like AI and advances in technology. But when did you get an appreciation say, right, my focus is going to be on quantum I took a couple, I mean, I think physics is poorly taught. And so you're first left with to learn pulleys and ramps and Mm, all of these very boring topics that... Prosaic and, yeah. Yeah, that you're like, there's going to be an app for this, right? Like, or there already is. It just felt kind of lame at the moment. But yeah, so it took a couple classes to then be introduced to quantum. And I just remember like browsing through magazines and books and just like getting a taste of it even though I wasn't in the class yet and so that's when I started getting a feel for it and Mm. the more I learned the more interested I got and so after my first quantum mechanics class I then just kind of went up to a professor and was like hi can I like I'm an undergrad can I work in your lab (laughs) and it was he was amazing and he he kind of treated me like a grad student in the sense of he was like, here's your own project. I mean, it was like Meyer on a fermions. I had to go in this clean room where you get your retina scanned mm. and the doors open and then... Retinas? Scan, yeah. What do you call them? Or, uh, to get into the clean room, it would take a retina scan and then be like, welcome, you have been detected. And the doors would open and i go in. And so I was like full on using this like high tech equipment <clears throat> as an undergrad and that's oh, that's when I got way more excited because mm-hmm. I pay attention to class, but I found the lectures kind of boring and I didn't see the point. I was like, OK, I'll just memorize it for the test and then forget it. Mm-hmm. But when when I was in the lab, I was like, oh, so, I actually need to know. Oh, oh, that's why I'm learning harmonic oscillators. Oh, that's why I'm learning about like the electron, you know, this and that, which I didn't. I don't know. I just kind of memorized I was, for the exam previously and then after I started working in lab I was like oh there's a point so can you explain quantum optics so quantum optics is what I did my PhD in and it was a subset of the atomic and laser physics department at Oxford and what will my research entailed dealing with light at the kind of um, we call them photons. Mm-hmm. They're described as particles of light because they come in these packets of energy. And what I, I can create them. So my setup, I was I built this setup in which I focused a high-powered laser into a crystal, and we'd be able to create pairs of packets mm-hmm. of these photons. And then these photons were kind of used as possibly as like qubits like quantum bits uh-huh. and and we'd use it, or you could take two of these photons and interfere them and create energy yeah so these 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 photons have energy and by interfering them you're able to do stuff like quantum metrology which is promises to measure things more precisely with these photons than you can without using the like mm-hmm. without using quantum yeah that was my experiment which meant but it's very difficult to so have does these that have a, Does that have an impact on technologies that people have heard of, like nanotechnology? Yeah, so, I mean, the idea behind quantum optics is uh, like quantum cryptography or quantum computing. It won't. It probably won't be the, the sole driver of a quantum computer, so it'll be combined with superconducting 
So it'll be a key component of the yeah, overall probably of like of quantum computers. It'll be a key component in the sense of like communication. Yeah. Because nothing tra- travels faster than light. So using light to transfer information is kind of quite relevant. And cool. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that helps me understand a little bit more about quantum um, optics. So talk of, Can yeah. Yeah, sure. Is it more or less like when you're using lasers for 3D, like cutting machines and stuff like that? Like you would use something where it creates energy, and but it's very precise in the way it cuts it, things like that? We use high-powered lasers, but by the time we're using these photons, it's like to detect the photons, we use these um, detectors that go down to minus 273 Celsius. It's like colder than outer space. We go to zero Kelvin because you have to be able to measure just, it's such little energy that we're using. So the initial laser, I've passed my hand through that laser and it's not fun. You kind of burn yourself. But, But later on, what we're producing are these single photons, which have tiny, tiny amounts of energy. But we're using that to store information. Wow. Yeah. That is incredible. Okay, so we've we've got a, a good sense of quantum um, computing to at least as a layperson to understand a bit of that direction. I mean, it's always still confusing. Like quantum will always be confusing to. I can't remember whose cat it was. The the the, the analogy of Schrodinger's cat. Yes, Schrodinger's. How do you say Schrodinger? Schrodinger's cat, which I think is a way of explaining the yeah phenomena the phenomenon of not knowing one answer or another that there isn't anything that doesn't seem to be binary it's not either an on off or a yes no or, or yeah is that a fair way of saying it yeah the conditions can be dependent like you said on time on event on on how it's measured it's it's so bizarre because it's very hard to wrap your head around when it doesn't happen on it's interesting i've got a friend that's just been building um is building an application um which is to solve a problem that we all have i think that there's no central place to save things you discover on the web. You've got multiple things like Evernote and you've got Google Docs. And the reason I raise it is yesterday when I was preparing for this, I I listened to a wonderful podcast with a guy on quantum physics before Christmas. And I remember I was in the gym and I remember looking on Wikipedia and seeing this amazing colour. It was almost like this rainbow-esque particle that he discovered. And I I need to bring this up. And I couldn't remember. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find it. But it was that whole area and that discussion he was having was getting into the fourth dimension. This whole quantum theory that there might be multiple dimensions. Yeah, amazing. Which is, it sort of feels that if you're dealing with something that is non-binary, non-predictable that the way that the world is made up, that maybe that does, is it fair to assume that that quantum, that what you're describing there as contradictory at times, could mean that there are parallel experiences or universes or time, and it changes our, our perception of what time and space is. There's so many like avenues in physics, like in different fields that, like for instance, I dealt with quantum optics for six years, but my research didn't explore parallel universes at all. So, um, yeah, I'm probably not the expert to answer that question, but, you know, it just opens up so many questions and 
I mean, it's just endless. Okay. Well, we could sort of probably <laughs> spend a, a whole interview discussing this because I'm, I'm fascinated by that whole area. But um, to get back on track, we've talked about your serendipity. I wanted to, I've heard you talk before about how you apply your understanding and appreciation of physics and movement uh, to movement in your ballet. How has your creativity and your artistic side manifests itself in your scientific life? How to start this answer? So one one kind of I, I don't know if to call it a like hypothesis or experiment, but is so like meditation has become super popular nowadays about like kind of canceling out all the negative thoughts that one has. But I felt that when I dance and when I or improv, like turn on the music and just improv you gain a strength in understanding where you get this kind of gut feeling or, or this inner voice, I want to say, of like what you should do next and where to go. And so a lot of the times I kind of made it, I made it like a hashtag my morning routines where I would t- turn on music and just improv just to kind of strengthen that gut instinct feeling. And so when I'm in the lab, there is no manual to tell me what to do, right? Like we're at the frontier of science. No one's like to get a doctorate, you need to publish something that no one's ever published before and no one's ever seen before. So you're constantly kind of, um, you know, knowledge helps strengthen your intuition. But at some point, I think a lot of the times, you know, we were kind of stopped and, and I was working with a, a colleague who wanted to do start always from the beginning and, and go through all of the steps to Z but by the time we got to Z we would have like made a ton of errors and like screwed up the setup a little mm-hmm. bit so sometimes I was like no I think my instinct says we can skip go from A and then go to M step M and then continue on like and the, there was a moment where I know I it was kind of like a, a feeling that I just needed to... This was when you were at Oxford? Yeah, when I was doing my experiment. And so when everyone was on holiday, I kind of just snuck in the lab and did did it the way I felt was right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, at that level, there is no right or wrong because no one's done it before, but I just kind of did something that felt right. And it was meant three weeks literally sleeping at the lab and turning this knob every half hour. But it worked. It, like, it did. Yeah. That's amazing. And so that was like at the end of my PhD... Because if you'd been consulting with your your tutor or mm-hmm. your, I don't know what you call them, tutor or mentor, yeah. they probably would have advised you against something that might not follow the, yeah, sort of the logic. Yeah, I've been following their advice for the past year or two years and we were kind of at the <clears throat> same spot every time. But who's, you know, it's very hard to know. So yeah, so you got that and that gut feel, that sense. I mean, so much of it, we talk, I've heard so many people talk about the gut of being that that's that second brain that we mm-hmm. have that sense of intuition that yeah. you tapped into it so you've you I, I just wonder how that overlaps with that gut feel overlaps with curiosity which is such a sort of a powerful driver of creativity but as creativity in it when you're trying to come up with some something as you've said that's never been done before even be at the cutting edge of science it's creativity mm-hmm. that leads to that that moment, that great aha, that um, yeah, and discovery. I. But I feel even after you know the PhD and all of this, like I feel out of everything I've uh, learned and trained, like I've gone through a lot of school, right? But I come out and I'm like, I don't feel particularly 
well equipped in this field of creativity. Like, mm-hmm. and I'm supposed to also have been this dancer, you know, I'm a dancer and scientist, but now post PhD, I look out for mentors specifically in creativity, mm-hmm. like in the way that they think, because I think in school that's kind of smashed out of you. You're supposed to memorize and regurgitate for exams. And, and unfortunately for ballet, you know, I was, every time I danced, I was doing it in a way that made me feel strong. But at the end of the day, there's kind of a set box of tools that you're supposed to learn. But it's one of the, I think it's one of the fundamental problems that we're facing with our education as we move into this, well into this century and the challenges that are facing us. In a world of artificial intelligence and quantum computing and um, machine learning, our school system is still languishing whether it be in Britain, whether it be in Italy or, or, or in the US, in the, the, in the 20, 19th, 20th century mm-hmm. techniques. And we're trying to sort of equip people like yourself who have got a, a immense capability to learn and to do these multiple, take on these multiple challenges that you've done. You need to be given a new methodology for thinking and learning that has creativity yeah. and curiosity and communication at the centre of it. And, and, taught it's not how there. To, and taught how to answer, like, ask the well, right question. But I don't know if you've, you probably don't have a time to read a lot of books, but I don't know if you've read uh, Yuval Noah Harari's latest book, um, 21 Rules for the 21st Century. No, I have not. It's, it's worth I... a read. If you get a chance on Audible and just race through it, it's really good. And he has a lot about the the future structure for education for Great. children. Yeah, that will be my next. Yeah, you'll enjoy it. I live it. off audio books. Yeah, as, as do I. <laughs> Big tick to uh, Audible. Be a sponsor. So... Yeah, so that creativity. So I think we're all in, I don't think any of us can ever become creativity something that's a lifelong mm-hmm. area to develop, to remain sort of curious and creative. So, But, but I, I think I, I feel like I could have been, out of all that, if I'm looking back, I'm like, that was a lot of school that I just went through. I don't feel as equipped as I feel that I should be, mm-hmm. given that I've been, you know, in that environment for so long. And I think that I'm like, actually... I almost think that I would be stronger creatively mm-hmm. in a different environment. I'm going to just jump back. How did you go from Boston to uh, Cambridge uh, to Oxford? Ah, okay. So there are a couple leaps in between. So I was had done two years at Harvard and then done a ton of auditions. My parents encouraged me to do auditions because they loved that I would fail and get back up. But then after like the 25th audition, I got into Zurich Ballet. And at that point, they're like, oh, no, what do we do now? <laughs> like, we kind of have to let her go. And I was kind of like, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And so I went uh, then to Zurich Ballet. I had a full year there. And at the end, I was ready to go back to school. I was feeling pressure to go back to school. I was feeling injured. Went back to school for a year, then quit dance, uh, then jumped back into dance and danced with Boston Ballet and went back to school, quit dance, and then decided to apply for grad school. And at that point, yeah, there was a decision to stay in the States or to go abroad. And I'm always looking. Gotta go. Yeah, I always like adventures. So I was like, let's go to Oxford. The path less traveled. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd been doing condensed matter as an undergrad. And the professor I had applied for was in quantum optics. So it was a different field, different country, different system. I don't know. All the difference that I could list, I was like. I like this. Ticked all the boxes. Okay. So you've you've got your PhD now. Mm -hmm. You're back in Boston. You're still Mm -hmm. dancing. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's next? 
I know, what a mystery. So I will be dancing with Norwegian National Ballet, a very classical labaydere with the legendary Makarova. And, well, she'll be setting the piece. And I'll be there a lot, like April to October. Um, before that, I've got a residency. Harvard has a new arts lab, which is super exciting. And this is going to be research and you know I like there's a lot to still figure out and this is when I'm like start banging my head on the table being like hey, come on be creative be creative but I think the idea is or what I'm going to be focusing on is is it possible to do physics research in an arts facility that's and, really interesting and well because right now I think everything that I see that combines art and science like I think it's good and I think it sometimes communicates ideas better, but I'm not sure it enhances either field particularly. Mm-hmm. Like I would love to see if I could, you know, is it possible to do physics research arts institute? When you say physics research, are you talking quantum research or? Yeah, possibly quantum. I'm also looking into, you know, looking into space you know, are there questions up there that we can answer down here? Um, yeah, like there, I mean, one of the, one of the examples I kind of list is, is like interstellar where they brought real scientists on board Mm. and gave them the facilities and to use this high tech equipment. You're talking the film. Yeah. The the film Mm. to like, you know, create these images of the black hole. And they insisted that they be able to do real science, like real physics, and not just the, something that would image it, but like use use the tools for this film to create something that was that was very factual. Mm-hmm. And they were able to publish papers afterwards and and discover new things that they would never have been able to do in their own science labs. There's a couple of directions you could take this yeah. in because I know you've done <laughs> ex- experimental work in VR. But I find that it's not something that gets me that excited. Mm-hmm. I don't think it can really push the potential of where you're thinking of going with this. I know you've trained as an astronaut, mm-hmm. which is a different conversation altogether. But, and we will come back to it. But it does make me... I do want to ask you a question about Elon Musk. But Elon Musk is, um, besides all his other incredible endeavours, the one I find the most interesting is Neuralink. And I don't know if you've encountered what he's doing there. So he's starting to build. So Musk... To, for anyone that doesn't really know Elon Musk's broader agenda, is everything he does is to address the existential threat to humanity. Mm-hmm. So cars, driverless cars, uh, fuel cells, the boring hole company to do holes to help do transport to reduce, uh, reduce effect on the environment and therefore the risk of the existential crisis that we face as, as a planet. The ability to... Uh, solve a problem for if we are in crisis mode to escape the planet to find another place is SpaceX. And Neuralink is his attempt to develop uh, machine brain interfaces that will be, his, in his view, the right way to solve and the only way to address the unrelenting march of AI that it can't just be machines, it has to be a human machine. It's probably our only way of being able to sort of solve it if we come together. I would have thought that that area of what he's doing in Neuralink, and if you just read it, I can send you a really interesting article about it. But anyway, I'll send it to you. Um, But if you can look into Neuralink, because I would have thought that area of physics, because it's it's it will need quantum solutions, Mm -hmm. I suspect, Mm -hmm. 
to be able to build that machine mm. brain interface that he's trying to do. Mm. And he's bringing together some of the smartest people on the planet to do it. Amazing. I think you and Elon need to get together. That'd be amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm on board. That's <laughs> not in the real so, sense, get together. Well, yeah, I mean, I've... Uh, I would not approve that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, I, when I say, I didn't say hook up, I just said, if it was in Scotland, I would be saying, Oh, they broke up. Oh, and I'll look up. No, the reporter. You don't, huh? The reporter. Oh, is that someone new? A Latin American reporter. Oh. Anyway, our producer and our creative director here uh, on the side are having a chat about Elon Musk. But to get back to the point, I do think, Merit, you, you and Elon and Elon's Neuralink team need to start to have a conversation because I think that could take you in a very interesting direction to address what you're saying, which will take immense amount of creativity, immense amount of understanding and imagination and capability to understand how quantum optics or mechanics will be able to address this problem. Now, I might be completely wrong and they might be not doing any of this, but I do think, it, what for me, it might be a serendipitous moment where you find your answer to that question of creativity. <laughs> so, we're not quite sure what you're doing next, but we're going to try and help you along yeah. the way with a bit of our creativity and serendipity. After all, it is the Impossible Network. Yeah. Um, and let's go back to you taking on this additional Besides being a ballet dancer, besides being <laughs> at Oxford, you decide I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna apply to BBC documentary series to be an astronaut. <laughs> it's not something that you was... just do as a sort of a, a little like drunken challenge at a party. You actually did this. Yeah. Well, I, I kind of applied as a you know at a party. Someone like at a party had told me that. BBC was looking for applicants. I was at the Christmas dinner, and so I'm like, don't apply just then. <laughs> and it was the incredibly life-changing experience, I would say, um, on multiple levels. A, it raised the bar for myself immensely, because what's required from an astronaut is over and beyond what's been required for me as a physicist or a ballet dancer. Um, yeah. Um, but it also kind of tapped into a lot of the... I felt like my training as a dancer and physicist, I was like, this is actually quite helpful. You know, while we're getting thrown into helicopters to hover for the first time and dunked underwater and drowned and <laughs> take it, having to take our own blood. And it just, I, I don't know, it, it opened my eyes completely. And you must have been around other uh, exceptional people. And also, I think it was Chris, Chris Hadfield. Hadfield, yeah. yeah. He's an amazing character yeah. in his own right. Yeah, commander, he's been commander of the International Space Station and just, I mean, superhero. Mm -hmm. So you went through that program. You, you, I mean, it was now, what, a year and a half ago that it, I think it aired? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was the outcome of it? So outcome was I, I made it halfway through. There were 12 candidates and... The thing that I failed most at was... Uh, Physics. <laughs> no, it was, it was anything kind of video, like that you needed video game skills. Oh, So when damn. my parents... You bet you phoned your father and said, Dad! Yeah, Dad. no, I really did. I was like, so when my parents banned the TV from the house, they also banned video games. And unfortunately, to be an astronaut, that's when you're docking the Soyuz to the International Space Station, there's six rotations and you need to know how to control mm. with your fingers and control an object from a screen. Or when you're, you're, you're manipulating the Mars rover and there's a six minute delay, you need to know how to navigate like a control, or even the helicopter, yeah, like the course. kids that 
were, you know, video game yeah. were uh, really good as kids. Scripted behavior. <laughs> we're like so good. In, yeah. So I, that was what I was terrible at. Oh. And that, that kind of docking the Soyuz into the International Space Station was not my... Uh, so I do hope that in your apartment, you've got the latest Xbox and PlayStation. <laughs> I <can't laughs> I mean, if not, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I started... I started Mr. A- Moore, can we have a chat? <laughs> I know. I was just so sad. But I, I've, I started a, um, a lessons, piloting lessons, mm-hmm. um, and kind of and, and continuing that training. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. We'll see if I can merge this all too serendipitously. Uh, I think, Sorry. yeah, you've got to keep it on the agenda. I see astronaut badges somewhere down the line for or Dr. Elon Dr. Musk, right? Like, well, there you exactly. go. I mean, if it, Elon might be saying to you, hey, hang on a second, Merritt. I don't need your brains on Neuralink, <laughs> but I do need your help with this gnarly little problem we've got getting to Mars faster. <laughs> So. But they or Yusaku, who's going to be the first um, traveler in the in SpaceX, mm. is going to bring eight artists with him. Yeah, and so I'm not sure how to. I was like, maybe I should tweet them and oh, just be that'd like, be "Great, ballet in space." Ballerina Dork really wants to go. Oh yeah, you've got to do that. <laughs> I just we've got to start hashtag. An artist. <laughs> yeah, come on, let's get that hashtag together. Let's get this going. Okay, so that's right. Any listeners, please send in your thoughts uh, to what the hashtag should be to get merit onto that space program. Okay, will be some nice. Uh, prize for you in New York or Boston that will we'll buy you dinner or something. Um, That's a good story. Okay, so um, Elon Musk, we've covered off. We've talked about your, you might be going to Mars. You're certainly going to be helping with Neuralink and doing something that is going to solve some problem that the world has at the moment that we don't know the answer for because that's clearly that you have that creativity, curiosity, although you don't believe you do, but I have a genuine belief that everyone does have that. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Everyone has it. I think uh, it's just kind of training it I think mm. it's like a muscle yeah, it is yeah but it's also having the confidence and it's a, that ability to I, you, with you it's, a, it's maybe a challenge of time but I do believe that you have to put yourself into places you wouldn't otherwise find yourself so whether it is areas of discomfort or going to galleries museums reading different books things that you wouldn't encounter speaking to people random people that come from different generations that might tell you something that you'd never thought of before it's that type of thing that mixes up that leads to it it's not living predictable lives so you were featured in a book called Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls which is amazing yeah we're gonna gonna come and ask you about that That, that's an amazing story because I've heard you mention it before what did they ask you what did they Um, they had reached out via email and I was busy writing my thesis so I think I just replied and said they they asked if they they could feature me and I was like I but I had no idea who they were or what and I was like yeah <laughs> I think I'm probably like yes <laughs> and then went back to my thesis um and later found out what that actually meant and was like oh my goodness oh my yeah and uh met the authors who are just a force of nature and incredibly inspiring and the, yeah, so I think we'll, we've got a book request for you at the end, but we might add that one because I think it's obviously a book that people should read and certainly my little nieces and probably my daughter herself will get it as a, as a present mm. for the next couple of months. I'm conscious of time. I want to jump in and do some quick fire questions. What principles do you stand by? Uh, moral principle? Like a... Yeah, something you live your life by, something you wouldn't, that keeps you on that, the right path. 
something that would be a compromise to your character if you didn't follow it? I have the belief that nothing's impossible. Possible just takes time. And so whatever hard work you put in, you know, will pay off in the end. In terms of principles, I think just this, my simple one is like sister comes first and then, you know, my other pursuits. And yeah. What does sister do? Sister is in grad school. She's yeah. at Georgetown. Yeah. And uh, she's my rock and best friend. And we've just... Uh, always been very close and don't tell me that she's a, a karate major in their spare time <laughs> nah, she she was a competitive diver and but she stole all of the funky cool jeans so she does hip-hop instead of ballet oh but yeah. you can dance to her hip-hop <laughs> we we do onesie dances together she choreographs uh can we see dances. some more of that on Instagram, please? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, we've got your principles. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Good question. Uh, tough, de- tough, tough decisions. Hard choices. Hard choices. Well, the reason we ask this question, mm-hmm. there's, um, I don't know if you've come across uh, Jersey Gregory, who okay. is an um, amazing Polish weightlifter, and he has a, a, a line he says, which is, hard choices, easy life. Easy choices, hard life. I think it's it's hard uh, the way it's asked, like hard choices, because I think a lot of my decisions, I can't do it any other way. So like when I graduated with my PhD last year, it was kind of, you know, starting from zero mm-hmm. and you get a lot of pressure to go straight into finance or a conventional job. And I was kind of determined I was not, like, I'd rather starve to death than yeah, like give up it. this physics and good on you this dance. Um, and also, let's face it, you're 30. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> a lot of the people who are asking this are a little bit older than that. So maybe you're, you've got some other hard choices. But I think you just answered it with that, that, that answer in terms and of I've not going into a mainstream hard, career. I've had to face hard scenarios. Um, mm. But I think they're kind of dealt to me mm-hmm. and I didn't really have a choice. So you kind of deal with it best you can. Okay. I like that. Where do you go or what do you do to discover new ideas or when you need space to think? I love not looking at my phone and just so commuting. Are they like airports? I find incredibly therapeutic and my place to kind of as my restart button because I find that, um, you know, as strong as I'd like to be, no matter you know I'm in different environments whether it be LA back home or or London you know I get there are certain things that push and pull me a certain way and I feel different pressures and kind of societal you know what's expected of me Mm -hmm. and as strong as I try to stay but whenever I go to an airport I feel quite free of that like a I'm entering an environment where no one knows me cultures are all mixed up like there's no right or wrong really and I can just kind of start from scratch and often I'll re I take a pen and paper and I write down do you journal I do journal Mm -hmm. I mean probably not as well as I should and it tends to sometimes it's this an email draft that Mm. then gets pushed down or I interviewed recently uh, Ryder Carroll who's an ADD sufferer and uh, ended up being a digital designer, a product designer. And he's created this book called The Bullet Journal because he had to solve his own ADD problems. And he did it through creating a methodology for journaling and capturing his thoughts and managing his attention. 
Wow. Uh, it's brilliant. So if you get a chance to, yeah. um, we'll, and actually what we'll do is we'll send you a copy of the bullet yeah. journal. It's a great book to read because it says a methodology mm-hmm. of managing things and it's very structured. I've started and I do find it quite useful. But I felt like I probably would have been diagnosed with ADD um, and, and somehow, but having to juggle the dance and the physics was what kept me focused. Yeah. And what was like, I, I definitely would not have been able to finish the physics PhD without, without dance. That's really interesting. And would not have, I think, stuck through dance without having physics because I, I could juggle back and forth right. in a way that would kind of keep my attention kind of going. And But it, I would need to be distracted. And so I distract it with the other thing and then go back and forth. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, you talked about obviously your most inspiring, your teacher, your Romanian, and also the woman, the the dancer called Sylvie Guillaume. <laughs> Are there any other influencers or inspirations you have in the physical realm, in the physical, in the physics uh, or scientific field? That- I mean, I, I would say it's, he's kind of like the stereotype Einstein, but it's mostly because <clears throat> he came up with a lot of his incredible ideas mm-hmm. by with imagination and creativity first. Any women? In physics, well, I had I had my incredible mentor Melissa Franklin. That, yeah. Yeah. The question I should have asked you earlier was really a, a question around diversity, Me Too, and everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. We will come back and just ask you that if you've got time at the yeah. end. Um, this is a a crazy question to ask you. <laughs> How do you keep up with technology? <laughs> but albeit, you, although you are a quantum physicist, do you still have to deal with the day to day realities of the latest technological advances outside of your specific area of field? And how do you keep up? Sorry, in in the lab or like just my no, phone? No, just personal, personally. And oh, I'm the what? worst. I always have the, like the oldest version of everything. And I don't know, emails kick my butt every day. And how do you keep up with um, the latest advances in, because it must be such a rapidly developing field, quantum um, yeah. physics? It's, it's rapid and also slow. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of hurdles that take quite a long time to get over and I think it's now going to be much faster now that a lot of the research is done through private sector mm-hmm. um, I think in academic setting it's really slowed down because the brilliant postdocs have to spend time writing the grants to get the money to then you know and you have to go through these purchase forms which take forever to get approved and just research in the academic level takes quite a while yeah it's it's you know fast and slow at the same time okay I think you've answered this question as well, but I'm going to ask you again, Mm -hmm. um, because we always ask our guests the impossible question. It's what your advice would be to someone 20 years younger than you, but maybe 10 years younger than you, uh, who may have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but is being told, like you were told, uh, you can't do that. It's not possible. In my go-to, which is nothing's impossible. It Mm -hmm. just takes time. And also that for them to know that their potential is far more than what they can possibly imagine mm-hmm. and what anyone else can possibly imagine. That's been my go-to. And the other thing is kind of making a, a mantra for themselves mm-hmm. that keeps uh, of what, you know, what excites them and pushes them in times when it's sort of tough and entails a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you talked about your goals, do you think those goals were your mantra? That you, when you set yourself, the thing your dad made you sit down and write? Yeah, well, he encouraged me to write. And my mantra then, well, my mantra was, I am free and I give hope. 
So mm. it kind of, I guess, summarized what I was writing down in the goals. And, but mostly it was kind of a reminder to myself every day that I'm free of stereotypes. I'm free of prejudices. I'm free to screw up and fail. I'm free to just be me. I'm free to do nothing or I'm free to do whatever I want. Like it just kind of opened, you know, it just made me in control of what I was going to do that day. And then the second part of my mantra was like, so I am free and I give hope. So the f- part of that was, yeah, when it's tough and I don't want to do it, I'm, I'm kind of lazy if it's for myself. But if there's a thought that any step forward that I take in proving that it's possible to do both science and the arts and that that you can start late and that you can be a female in science or whatever it is, that any step forward that I take possibly gives hope and inspiration to someone else who is probably far more talented and and can do it much better than myself and just needs that little example. And so that's kind of spurs me forward for, you know, the difficult hours Mm -hmm. of being in the lab and late at night, you know, in the studio. Before we ask the final two questions, one, one's about a book and the other one's about who should, who we should interview next. I do want to go back and ask the two questions I skipped. The one is about diverse diversity and inclusion, particularly in the sciences and, Mm -hmm. I mean, I know there's a lot being happening in the in ballet circles with um, yeah. the uh, the director of the New York Ballet that we don't need to spend time on. I think it's been well documented yeah. and it's an issue in that side of in the arts, and mm-hmm. as we well know. But there is a lack, a, a, a dreadful lack of inclusion of women in the sciences. Mm-hmm. So two things there: is it being addressed, and how have you have you do you think that there is an issue? for the Me Too movement in the sciences? At least there are conversations going on. I think the change is very <clears throat> slow in happening. I think the the ratio has been the same for the past 40 years. And, it, and unfortunately, the debate starts happening up at universities. Mm. And at that point, I'm kind of like... Too late. Yeah, like the like people have already made up their minds what they like, what they want to do or what they can't do, and and so that you'll see these fellowships for like women who have just graduated to like continue on. And I'm like, look, I'm I'm committed to the I'm committed to the physics. Like mm-hmm. the problem starts at age three. Like and and I believe that you know it happens at age three with the toys and the bombardment and the commercials and what you know girls uh, are yeah but you know. You know what's kind of subconsciously happening. Um, I but, it, but yeah. it, presumably it's changing. I mean, I, I I'm very familiar with the girls at code movement. There's obviously more women going into education. Even if you look at the stats in the UK, there are more girls achieving high level um, grades in education, in particularly in the sciences. I think there's obviously at an educational policy standpoint, changes still need to happen. But there seems to be movement in the right direction. I think there's movement in the right direction, and but I think it's easy to say that there's movement in the right direction if you're just looking at on that level. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's easy to just look at those stats, but then to forget, yeah, a girl wakes up and the minute we go outside, we're treated differently if we have our hair up or if, you know, we have makeup on or if we don't or if, you know, we... we 
if we go for a lunchbox that has a dinosaur on it, it's labeled as a boy's lunchbox. And then we're kind of questioning whether or not we're allowed to like it, even though probably half the dinosaurs were female as well. You know, like it's just like like just all constantly being mm-hmm. and it's just the on gender the gender stereotypes that we're bombarded. Yeah, with like from commercials to like just yeah. everywhere. It's, it's crazy. So it, it goes really deep. It goes Even where we think there are advances happening, there's still we're still some way off. Yeah. And I used to think um, there was a whole debate at Oxford about whether or not they should change the, you know, the history. Right. And there are these old photos of, you know, a ton of old white men all around the campus and I don't know that I used to think I was like, it's history. I don't like, I'm fine with it. Mm -hmm. But there was one event I got invited to speak to and I'd never actually been part of the women in physics club because in my head I was like, well, maybe it just highlights the fact that there is a difference between men and women. But I, I was invited to speak to these little girls and I said yes. And I was at lunch with them and we were in the dining hall and they're all 11 and, and they were looking up at the portraits and I don't know, one found a fe- one female. And they're like, oh, there's a female, there's a girl, there's a woman. <laughs> and the girl next to her was like, don't get it, it's just the wife of someone. You know, and oh. at that point I was like, oh, oh. oh. Yeah. you know, like what they absorb mm-hmm. at such a young age. You know, it's hard to tell them yeah. being like, that was the past, we've now proceeded to the future. And so at that point it kind of changed my mentality and I then joined the women in physics club and then have been had a um it's funny I I was either hearing someone interviewed I think it was around the time of the release of Black Panther and how he was brought up by his mother as a single parent she used to take him only to see black movies Hmm. and there were obviously a certain limited amount because she didn't want him to be given the Hollywood and cultural stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he grew up not thinking about yeah. people not being in cinema being black because that's all he saw. Yeah, and it's a brilliant way of managing it. Same way. I mean, it's exactly the same way. It's a, when you said that about your father, I immediately thought of that. Yeah, and it's the same thing. We have to engineer change, even if it might, I, I don't think it's changing history. I think it's just how the we cues you give people. Perception. Yeah. You're not in denial of history. You can still talk about it and say, look, this happened. But don't ram it down people's... uh, So when they're in this neuroplasticity phase where they're sort of absorbing stuff, that they are given this sense, reinforced with the the day-to-day gender stereotypes, that you're not good enough or it's not for you. And just have them questioning, I think, at a young age. Yeah, there are a lot of cases like kindergarten. Maybe we'll do a follow-up on this one. (laughs) The other question I was going to ask, if you were given handed the keys to the White House or the mayor's office even, uh, what would you start to do or what key changes would you make to improve the future opportunities of youth in this country? Definitely with education. Hmm. Maybe you answered it around those gender stereotypes. Yeah, if I had one thing to change, I'm not sure I'd change this. But on a smaller basis, I think at least for physics, I would introduce the quantum mechanics and special relativity and galaxies in the universe all of it like the bizarre black holes and this and that before the ramps and the pulleys there you go and save like, that, like that for the end um yeah but St- i mean stimulate the imagination first yeah but in terms of like white house i'd be like maybe trump can we can, uh, <laughs> can go <laughs> no but you'd be the keys he wouldn't be there yeah, yeah. it'd be president like Moore. you out <laughs> 
Okay. Um, right, down to the final two. So um, we'd like to offer a um, book to our listeners who submit the mm. best comments in the comment section. What book would you like us to give? Besides a rebel book that you appear in. <laughs> the, the most recent book I just read was The Art of Learning by Josh Waitzkin. And it was, he was this world-class uh, chess champion and then martial artist. And it kind of talks about the not just to get to the top 5%, but between, you know, his 5% and, and 1%. Mm. And that was fascinating. And um, Yeah, he's a fascinating character. Yeah. It's totally inspiring to listen to an interview mm-hmm. with him. Because it's a, it's a I, I find in all the pursuits, like strengthening the mind. And I mean, I used to read tons of like the sports psychology books and self-help books because I had started dance late physically. And so, you know, I just thought, well... At least I'll come at it with like <laughs> mentally as strong as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, final question: Who should we interview next? Well, let's see. Uh, interview Elon Musk and then see. If <laughs> I can, right. Okay. <laughs> right. Listen here. Listen, I can get on that. Right, listen here. Like listen that. here, Doctor Moore. Get just you settle down. If we're only just started the Impossible Network, it would be almost impossible to get to Elon Musk at the moment. Maybe it's a challenge for me then. Right. Besides Elon Musk. And Josh Waitzkin. <laughs> Who should we interview next? Ooh. Um, Any, or, or like anyone, anyone you think that would be a good guest on the Impossible Network? Someone that's done something that you think is pretty awesome. damn good. Someone that has achieved their possible when others, that embraces the same principles you do. Um, well, someone's creativity who really inspires me is Thomas Heatherwick. And oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. Who... I was, you know, fortunate enough to have some conversations with who was like able to, in the way that he asks questions, mm. like that's when I, yeah. I'm like, okay, oh, okay, my creativity is nowhere, mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah, it's someone like that who in- okay. inspires. Well, like, if you're connected to him, I will at some point. It won't be next because we've got other people to interview. Yeah, if you're up for it to do a little intro yeah. once you're alive, you can say, hey, I've been interviewed on the yeah. Possible Network. <laughs> And I know he's in uh, New York and London, so mm-hmm. um, sitting down with him would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I'll just summarise. I think you have gone beyond what I expected you to be as a, as a guest on the Impossible Network. Absolutely okay. brilliant. I think for me, the, the, well, probably the most powerful takeaway I've, from this interview is your mantra um, of being free and giving hope. Because I think anyone that listens to this interview with you that reads about you that follows you on instagram that discovers you in the book that you've been featured in either the new one that's the you put on instagram Uh, be bold be bold yeah oh bold women bold Bold women women bold bold women or the rebel girls yeah yeah volume two volume two (laughs) will be inspired and given hope both in their ability to achieve whatever they desire or are expected to deliver by their peers, their family. And you also give hope that society is changing. You're a, um, a beacon of change, that drive, someone that's driving change in society that is setting down the benchmark to other women and for men to step up and policymakers to understand that change can only happen when individuals drive themselves but also in parallel that people who are in positions of responsibility and power can do what they need to do 
that they know needs to be done to address the inequities in society, particularly the gender inequity, because society needs it and society will benefit. So I applaud you for what you've done. I'm excited um, as to what's in store in the future, because I think whether we do get this Mr. Musk <laughs> and and Miss Moore connection, could be a good movie there, a uh, good documentary maybe yeah. down the road. Documentary producer sitting beside me. I think you are going to be uh, play some pivotal part in some very positive changes in society. So I'm really looking forward to the next 20 years of oh, your journey. Thank you so much. So thank you very much for being on the Impossible Network. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people discover us. Just go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to subscribe and rate. For now, stay curious, be creative and be open to serendipity. See you next time.